We've had great special music today. Thank you. you know, I don't know who found that, whether it's Joyce or Steve. Joyce shared some things about it with me a few weeks ago, and it's just blessed our service with the song and also the uh, quotes and excerpts being read. And so thank you, Billy, for taking part in that too. I don't know where he went, but uh, he's probably on his way back to the, there he is, on his way back to the sound. So thank you. And Janet, I want to recognize Janet, who's playing with us today too. It's good to have Janet with us. Uh, every time she comes to town, we include her in our worship service. I don't know about every time, but it seems like it, and we're really grateful. So um, we'll look forward to the next time you're in town as well. It's, you just play piano so beautifully and add so much to our service. We're going to look at uh, children are dismissed to junior church at this time. So children may be dismissed to junior church. And we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you would turn in your Bibles or Pew Bible, a Bible you brought with you, your Bible app. If you want to turn in the Pew Bible to 1 Timothy 2, which is in the New Testament, and uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to give you the page number, just in case you want to follow along. This is a passage dealing with prayer, and it's dealing with praying for our leaders. And I was thinking about how to address July 4th and uh, Independence Day, July 4th being tomorrow, of course. How do we address it? What sermon topic, text? Uh, this year I thought about prayer and this is about prayer and prayer for our leaders. It's on page 932 in the Pew Bible, 932 in the Pew Bible. Of course, you're welcome to turn in your own Bible. I encourage you to bring your own Bible to church as well or in your Bible app. You know, prayer has always been talked about a lot and prayer has always been taken seriously. In today's world, uh, they still seem to take in an increasingly secular climate, an increasing client, uh, climate that's just hostile to Christianity, People are still receptive to prayer. Even, even, even atheists or non-believers seem to be pr- uh, receptive to prayer. They still even pray at presidential inaugurations and different events. I read about a sporting event that had prayer, and it was this was a few years ago, but it was a NASCAR event, and, C- and it was on live TV, and CBS News reports this about this particular prayer NASCAR event. Pastor Joe Nelms came through with a car racing invocation that won't soon be forgotten. His prayer before the nationwide Federated Auto Parts 300 managed to fuse unusual automotive praise with a memorable spousal shout out. Nelms began the prayer straightforward enough, thanking God for all his blessings. uh, But then his list of gratitude grew increasingly creative. First, he thanked the man upstairs for all the Dodges and Toyotas and the Fords. He then gave thanks for GM Performance Technology, Sunoco Racing Fuel, and Goodyear Tires that bring performance and power to the track. He was getting specific. Remember, this is a NASCAR event. Then Nelms got personal. Lord, I want to thank you for my smoking hot wife tonight, Lisa, he said, and my two children, Eli and Emma, or as we like to call them, the little E's. That was his prayer at a NASCAR event, a public prayer. We still have certain prayers publicly. Today, I want to look at 1 Timothy 2 and look at this prayer. And I want to address really the idea of how are Christians to live as Christians in an increasingly secular climate? How are we to live as Christians in a climate that's increasingly, some would say, even hostile to Christianity? How are we to live as exiles? Now, in reality, Christians have been exiles for the last 2,000 years. There's never been a 
uh, we're not like Israel that had uh, land and, and, and the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, even set up pretty much the in Israelite constitution. And that The Pentateuch is even the Israelite laws and things like that. Christians haven't had that. Christians cross over cultures. You know, that's why we could spread. And if we look at 1 Timothy 2, written to the people of God, the Christians in Ephesus, it was a very secular climate. Certainly a very non-Christian climate. Christians were very much being persecuted. It was a very corrupt climate. And so as we read the New Testament, that gives insight to us. For a time, especially in our country's founding, we were clearly founded on Judeo-Christian values. We were founded as a country that did, at least publicly, respect Christian values. It's going by the wayside. Isn't it? We are increasingly being in an, living in an environment that does not respect Christian values. Washington Post reported just a week or so ago about a woman in Texas who, because of a Texas law that prohibited abortion after six weeks, she was forced to carry her twins to birth instead of swimming with dolphins in Hawaii. You hear that, the wording, raising twins, way more burdensome, and certainly children are a blessing and children are a responsibility. We're in a society that looks like, takes out the blessing and just looks at them as a curse and as a burden, increasingly hostile to the Christian worldview. Or on the show Star Trek Strange New Worlds a few weeks ago, which I'm sure you've all seen. <laughs> on Star Trek Strange New Worlds, there was a woman talking to Spock. Now, just a little Star Trek education going on here. Spock, who was half human and half Vulcan, half human, half alien, and this woman tells Spock, you can be whoever you want to be, no matter who you are. And I'm watching, thinking about that statement, thinking, that's ridiculous. That's irrational. That's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. In my mind, just so you know, um, transparency here, full disclosure, in my mind, I am six foot five. That doesn't mean I don't need Megan to reach things for me in the kitchen. Just because in my mind I want to be six foot five, or why stop there, seven foot two, that doesn't make me six foot five. In our minds, we may think of ourselves as younger, but you cannot be whoever you want to be, regardless of who you are. As we watch a show, Megan realized it before me. We're watching that character who is supposed to be a woman, and Megan said, I think that's actually a man playing that woman. We looked it up for sure. It was a transgendered woman, which means an actual biological man playing this person. So we are in an increasing environment hostile to a Christian worldview. How are Christians to live? They're to live in prayer. We're to live in prayer. And we pray for people to be saved. And we pray for things to be changed. And we pray the best for a very secular world. And so let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, and we see that the Bible challenges us to pray. The Bible tells us what to pray for. 
The Bible tells us the goal of our prayer. The Bible gives us the confidence we can have in who we pray to. What to pray for, the goal of our prayer, the confidence we have, we can have uh, as to who we pray to. We pray to the Lord of heaven and the earth. You know, if you look at verse 4, it says about God our Savior, and it says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the ultimate answer. God wants all people to be saved. Let's read this passage. Paul says in verse one, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Notice how he says that. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice how right there in verse two, he says, for kings... For all who are in high positions, that includes our senators, our congressmen and women, our our mayors, our local city council members, all people. And he's specific even there to government leaders. And he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's almost like Paul is saying, pray for them that they'll leave us alone as Christians. They'll let us spread the gospel. They'll let us live as Christians. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. God is our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then verse 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ means Messiah, means Savior, the man Savior, anointed one Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. In verses 1 through 2, the apostle Paul writes about the objects and contents of our prayers. The objects and contents of our, of our prayers. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. We may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The objects and contents of our prayers. Notice as we look at verse 1, Paul urges a people. He writes, I urge, and that's a verb. And, it's tra- and, and the verb that this is translated from carries the idea of encouraging or exhorting. He is urging, he is encouraging, he is exhorting. Pray, pray, pray. I'm challenging, I'm urging, I'm exhorting, I'm encouraging. Pray. Are we taking this instruction of prayer seriously? What's our prayer life like? It's way easier to complain. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Oh, but it's easier to complain than to pray. And more fun. I think sometimes, maybe every time we want to complain, we better pray. I was watching pictures of protests outside the Supreme Court a few weeks ago, and I saw people protesting, and I saw Christians just on their knees praying. It's powerful. And it is more powerful to pray than anything else. He says we pray with supplications. This has the idea of our prayer life being a humble list to God. It carries the idea of pleading to God, humbly coming to God. I need your help. I need you. And we don't pray. We are saying we don't need God. Now take care of this. Don't need God's help. We need God. We are humbly coming before God. Then Paul simply says prayers. The noun used for pray is the most general word we can use to pray. In fact, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of intercession, and all other types of prayers fit under that noun's definition. And then Paul urges us to intercede. 
intercession. This is praying on behalf of other people's needs. We know needs, don't we? We pray on behalf of other people's needs. Somebody going through cancer, somebody dealing with dementia, somebody who's a caregiver, somebody dealing with depression, somebody dealing with anxiety, maybe our own needs that way. We are praying on behalf of other people's needs. The most important thing we can do to support someone is pray. Now, that's not the only thing we can do. Some of you, your next door neighbors, or we are, and we need to pray, and then we need to go help. But don't help and not pray. Pray and help. Pray. It is so, uh, and, 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 and then we're urged to pray in thanksgiving. Never forget what God has given you. It is so easy to simply come to God with our needs while we are forgetting what we have been given. In Romans 1, uh, not being thankful is listed in connection with all these different Gentile sins. How thankful are we? How common is is it to pray before meals? Do we sit down with a meal and pray, or are we like our dog and just dig in? We're better than dogs and pets. We pray. We give thanks, don't we? I know sometimes for the ice cream, we feel a little guilty praying for thank, <laughs> thank, thankfully, right? We need to pray that the Lord gets rid of the calories. But are we thankful? Heard about an atheist. He was out hunting. Many of you might have heard this story. And all of a sudden, a bear starts... He sees a bear, and the bear starts following him and running after him. It's a bad bear, like a grizzly bear, a mean bear, you know. Not a black bear. I hear they're kind of friendly. They've been around here. But this is like a, a, a big, mean bear. And this is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. A, which means no. Theist, which means God. No God. He starts running from the bear, and the bear tackles him. And the bear gets on top of him. And he looks at the bear in the eyes. And the bear is about to eat him. And he cries out to God, God, help me. And he sees the bear fold his hands and say, Dear Lord, we thank you for this meal that I'm about to eat. (laughs) How thankful are we? (laughs) Can we be like the bear and be thankful for the food that we eat? So we pray in supplication. We pray in intercession. We pray in thanksgiving. One source tells me these three terms indicate that the initial prayer term distinguishes the element of insufficiency. By the requester. We are insufficient in and of ourselves. So we must come to the Lord in prayer. And that, and as we talk about our country today and our independence and celebrating Independence Day, celebrating July 4th, we must remember that we are insufficient on our own to take care of the needs of our society, to take care of the needs of our country. We're insufficient on our own. We need the Lord's help. Government's insufficient. Politicians are insufficient. We all need the Lord's help at the local level, at the state level, the national level. We all need the Lord's help. And that's what this starts with. And then there's devotion by the seeker and childlike confidence of the petitioner. These prayer terms are all very important. We see prayers of supplication that show we are merely human coming before God. We, we see insufficiency as we ask God for help in humility. We pray in intercession, simply coming to God with the needs of others. We come giving thanks, recognizing what God has provided, thankfulness. And now Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these prayers would be offered for all people. No one is left out. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to list everyone. We can. Or we could list people as God brings them uh, to our mind. But we don't leave people out. In 1 Timothy, Paul had been writing against false teachers. These false teachers that Paul had been writing about might have limited prayers for a specific group. I know a friend who left a church because the pastor said he just could not pray 
for our president. No, no one's left out. And prayer is the only thing that really changes things. We need to pray for our president. Whether we like him or not, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're completely uh, against a biblical worldview and a Christian agenda, then they need prayer even more. And if they do hold to a Christian worldview, we need to pray for them that they don't back down. We need to pray for our leaders. No one is left out. We also need to pray for our neighbors, our friends, our school board members, our township trustees. We need to pray for everyone. Prayer is the only thing that can really make the difference. Verse 2 specifies a few groups to pray for. It says kings and all in high positions. This is not the only time Paul mentions praying for our leaders. Our leaders have a great task on them. Pray for them. And I believe the devil attacks them. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says, We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying to God. And Daniel reads, Daniel reads that after 70 years of captivity, God would restore the land of Israel. Daniel reads that, and Daniel prays to God in Daniel chapter 9. And he says, when are you going to restore them? What's going to happen? Can we go back to, to Jerusalem now? And an angel brings a response. And the angel says, I'm sorry for the delay. I was in a struggle with the prince of Persia. And it's obvious the prince of Persia is not the prince of Persia. It's a demonic influence affecting the nations. There is a spiritual realm out there, and it's alive and well. And they want to bring down Christianity and bring down the Christian worldview and stop the spread of the gospel. Along those lines, let me say, God is working in ways we cannot even understand. You realize the church in China is heavily persecuted. Yet, by 2050, there will likely be more Christians than communists. It's growing. It's growing. By 2050, we might see a total different China because Christianity is sweeping the land. Christianity is growing in North Korea and Iran, in these countries where it's persecuted. God can bring revival and renewal in ways that we cannot even fathom. God has a better plan, a better idea than mine or ours. Some years ago, there was placed upon the altar of the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge an exquisitely illuminated copy of Washington, President Washington, George Washington's prayer for the nation. He wrote, Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that thou wilt keep the United States in thy holy protection. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. That thou wilt incline the heads of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government. And entertain a brother affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens of the United States at large. Washington continues. And finally, that thou wilt most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper, which means peaceful temper, of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. And with a humble imitation of whose example in these things we can ever hope to be. A happy nation. Grant our supplication, we beseech thee, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The, uh, so we see right there an example. President Washington praying for our country. And as you know, we had presidents in the past who would even proclaim national days of prayer. Man, I'm sorry. Break. Time out. <laughs> My throat, something's going on. <coughs> okay. Abraham Lincoln warned us about the possibility in the midst of the horrors of our civil war. In November 1863, as he called our nation to prayer and repentance, Lincoln said, we have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. Lincoln said, we have been preserved these many years in peaceful, in peace and prosperity. 
We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever known. But we have forgotten God. Lincoln said, we have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts and all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. 1863. That could be applied today, couldn't it? We have forgotten God. Ben Franklin, not exactly known as a conservative Christian, nevertheless exhorted us not to forget God as the constitutional convention ground to a stalemate. He said, we shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves should become a byword down to future ages. I there beg, I, I there, uh, Franklin said, I therefore beg, I therefore beg to move prayers, imploring the assistance of heaven. And his blessings on our deliberations to be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. And that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate at these services. They recognize prayer. We need prayer. We need prayer now as much as ever. We need prayer. That's how we are to live as Christians during this age. Paul writes that when we pray, we pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He says, this is good and pleasing to God. I think it's amazing in and of itself. Isn't it nice to think that we can be good and pleasing to God? We can be good and pleasing to God because of Jesus has shed blood on the cross for our sins. Paul says, God is our savior. Paul says, God wants all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a major principle there. God wants all to be saved. Do we want all to be saved? Do we want to see our children, our grandchildren saved? Do we want to see our neighbors saved? Do we want to see people that maybe are mean or hostile at us to be saved? Do we want to see the person that is immoral uh, saved? Do we want to see this happen? God wants all to be saved. And that is the ultimate answer, the ultimate way that changes hearts. So our goal of our prayer is salvation. In verses 5 through 7, Paul writes about the confidence of the goal of our prayer. Jesus paid a ransom for us. There is one mediator between God and mankind. These false teachers in Ephesus might have taught that angels were mediators. There was angel worship. No, angels are not mediators, only God. Our mediator is a man, Christ Jesus. Jesus came as one of us and he mediates for us. Verse six, uh, verse six tells us how Jesus can mediate. I'm sorry, verse six tells us how Jesus can mediate. Jesus paid a ransom. Jesus paid our ransom. Jesus went to the Father for us with his blood so that we can be saved. We have this confidence when we pray. We have confidence in God. So I ask, how's our prayer life? And as we live in exiles, so to speak, in a country that is not our homeland, someday we will have our homeland, the new heaven and new earth. As we live in a country that increasingly is even hostile to Christianity, in a country with leaders, not all of them, but many, who will even try to limit the free expression of Christianity, in a country where people will even vote to kill the unborn or various other things, how do we live? We live in prayer. One of the great shaping personalities of Protestantism was Martin Luther. We sometimes have the impression that all this brilliant monk Martin Luther did was nail a list of protests on the church door in Wittenberg. 
But nothing could be further from the truth. Luther worked as an inspired man preaching, lecturing, and writing daily. The complete edition of Luther's papers runs into thousands of pages. He worked inconceivably hard, and yet in spite of all this, Luther managed to pray for an hour or two every day. He recognized the need for prayer. C.S. Lewis said, The Christian is not to ask whether this or that event happened because of prayer. Don't ask whether this or that event happened because of prayer. C.S. Lewis said, he is rather, the, the Christian is rather to believe that all events, all events without exception are answers to, pray, to prayer in the sense that whether they are grantings or refusals, the prayers of all concerned and their needs have all been taken into account. That's a lot to think in. That is how Christians are to live. We pray. We pray for everyone. We pray for our leaders. And I challenge you, I exhort you, I encourage you. Be, people, be a people of prayer. Also be a people of action. You know, I shared that illustration at the very beginning of the sermon. The Washington Post article that wrote about this woman in Texas who was forced to raise her twins or be raising her twins. They might be babies now. I'm not sure how, how, how long ago they've been born. It had to be recent because it referenced the Texas law that banned abortion after six weeks. And it says she was forced to raise these twins rather than abort them. Well, some Christians heard about this and they started to go fund me for her. And so at the time of that writing, they raised $56,000 to help support this young mom. We need to be people of prayer. And as the Lord leads, we need to be people of action. As the Lord leads. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for this passage where Paul is encouraging us how to live. As he encouraged the people of Ephesus to pray, we also are encouraged or exhorted or urged to pray. We pray for all people. We pray for kings and leaders and rulers that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And we do pray for our leaders, Lord. Help our leaders to come to know you as Lord and Savior. Those that do know you, give them boldness and winsomeness to, to speak for truth, to speak for life, to speak for a biblical worldview. And as our leaders are attacked physically and I'm sure spiritually too, we know that you are in control. As the proverb says, the king's heart is like water and you move it in whichever way you will. You channel that water. You are in control. So we do pray. Lord God, may Bethel friends be a people of prayer. Hold us accountable to pray. And encourage us that you are on the throne. You are in control. As so we sing, God bless America. We ask for your blessing. And first and foremost of that blessing, we ask for the blessing of salvation that more and more people will be saved. That's the greatest need. And in that salvation, hearts are changed to the point where abortion is unthinkable. And so are many of the other sins that they want to codify and condone. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
As they sing the closing song, their altars are open. And if God has said anything, anything on your heart that you would like to pray for, maybe it is praying for our country. Maybe it's praying for our nation. Maybe it's praying for a relative that doesn't know the Lord. That's important to pray for, very important to pray for. Maybe it's anxiety or depression or, or a job loss or a new job, whatever it might be. Come forward. We'd, uh, elders up here would be happy to pray, for, pray with you, and so would Timothy and, and many others. You're able to stand with us this week. Close this service the way we start.